Good evening, everyone. Good to see you for our evening worship service. Our call to worship is from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7, and this is often used as an assurance of pardon, but it's also, I think, a call to worship God. It's an invitation from Him to you uh, to enter into His place. So I'll read God's Word. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So God is calling you to return to him this evening. So we will do that. But before we sing, let me pray for us. God, you are always calling us to return to you, to come back to you, because you have compassion because you want us to be near you. Lord, we want to be with you. We want to be near you this evening. Would you give us your Holy Spirit in full measure this evening as you lead us in worship in spirit and truth. We thank you for this time of worship, and we do this all for your glory. We pray that you would encourage us and challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand for our first hymn this evening, it is hymn 659, which is Let Us Praise God Together. Let's sing hymns. You may be seated. As we just sang and as we heard in our call to worship, God calls us to to forsake our way, to call upon him, to confess our sins, because 
He has compassion on you and me, and he will abundantly pardon. And so I invite you to read with me the corporate confession of sin, which is in your bulletin, and then we'll take some time to silently pray individually as we go before God and are met by his compassion and grace. So would you pray with me the prayer that's in your bulletin? Most holy and merciful Father, we acknowledge and confess before you our sinful nature, prone to evil and slothful and good, and all our shortcomings and offenses. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. O Lord, have mercy on us. Teach us to hate our sin, cleanse us from our secret faults, and forgive our sins for the sake of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. Holy and loving Father, help us, we pray, to live in your light and walk in your ways according to the commandments of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we read in your word in 1 Peter chapter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lord Jesus, by your wounds we have been healed. Your righteousness is credited to our account, is imputed to us by faith alone, not something that we deserve or could ever hope to deserve. But Lord, you give and you give because you are a God of love. You are love. You are compassionate. So God, as we bring our sins to you, as we confess those things that we have done and things that we have not done, Lord, help us to be assured of your compassion for us that we don't have to continue to uh, confess the same sin over and over again. But, Lord, we bring it to you once, we lay it at your feet, and you promise to forgive all of our sins. So, God, help us to walk in this lifestyle of repentance, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We bring our needs before you, our desires. We ask that you would... Um, make them holy, that you would make them according to your will, so that as we pray, we can expect that you would answer as if we have already received it. God, go before us, we pray in this worship service, and be with your people this evening and those who are not here. Lord, heal those who are sick, who are recovering from surgery or injury. Lord, be with all of us as we have spiritual needs and spiritual deficits. 
God, we pray that you would remedy those things. Have compassion on us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take up our evening offering, we'll sing our next hymn, which is Hymn 84, which is Under the Care of My God, the Almighty. Let's continue with Hymn 84.
I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Before we begin, let me pray. God, as we open your word to the gospel of Mark, would you speak to us clearly? Would you uh, fill our hearts? Would you lead the unrepentant to repentance? Would you do things that we could never hope for or even ask for or imagine uh, through your word preached because it will not return void? We trust you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Mark chapter 12, verse 1. This is God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once upon a time, there was a story about a CEO of a company that today is valued at 28 trillion dollars. I don't even know how that's possible. It's a, it's a big number. Uh, that CEO was fired from the same company, and many of you know this story or you know who this is, which is, of course, Steve Jobs. In 1976, he started Apple, and maybe you don't know this, but in 1985, he was fired for an underperforming computer that had the first ever graphical interface. So after being fired from his own company, Jobs started a new company. And meanwhile, Apple saw many different CEOs come and go. And then in the early 1990s, one CEO tried to sell most of Apple's stock, tried to sell the company, but couldn't do it. And then he came up with this great idea of buying Steve Jobs' company, and thus bringing Steve Jobs back to Apple in 1995. Two years after that, Apple 
took a nosedive and lost most of its value on the stock market. Someone had triggered a massive sell-off of Apple stock, which if you don't know the stock market, selling a bunch of stock in one company is not good, typically. And this person who sold the stock was actually Steve Jobs. He was trying to convince the company to hire him back as CEO. And, of course, they hired him back. He was named the official CEO of Apple in 2000. And the rest is history. This is one of the most, I think, amazing stories of reversal that we have seen in our modern times. The original CEO of Apple is fired from the company that he helped start, is hired back, and then catapults to unbelievable success. You could say the stone that the builders of Apple rejected became, of course, the cornerstone. The parable that Jesus tells us is one of similar astonishing reversal. That's far more important than stock prices and trillions of dollars. So what do we make of it? This parable has several subjects and topics, but one I want to focus on tonight is pride. Pride. And we're going to look at the problem of pride and the reversal of pride. The problem of pride and the reversal of pride. So let's take a look again at this parable and see what it means. The vineyard in this parable is Israel. God has uh, chosen a people, a land, and he has given it to his people. And the tenants here, Jesus is saying, are the Sanhedrin, or the religious authorities that he is coming into contact with in his time in Jerusalem as he's getting nearer and nearer to the cross. The owner, who is God, sends servants to tend to the vineyard to check on the tenants of the property. But the tenants, of course, are beating and killing servant after servant that comes to visit. The servants being the prophets, and the beloved son, of course, being Jesus. Across the Old Testament, you'll see prophet after prophet sent to Israel, to God's people, preaching a message of grace and forgiveness, and repeatedly being beaten and often killed. The story of Zechariah is strikingly similar to our parable. In Second Chronicles 24, we read this story. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehida, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. So we see just in this story, the people conspire against 
the one God has sent to preach the good news. They convince the king to kill him. He is stoned to death in the court of the house of the Lord after preaching the word of God. To me, this story sounds like the religious authorities were saying, God can't forsake us if we forsake him first. You can't forsake us if we kill you, which is, of course, ridiculous. The Sanhedrin Jesus is talking to in our parable, in our story, are blinded like these people are in Second Chronicles. And there's a great irony in this parable that the religious leaders can't quite see. They can't see the obvious. As they're hearing the story from Jesus, they're supposed to think, who could ever treat these messengers like this? Who would do this? Who are these tenants? They must be evil. Who could do such a thing? The religious leaders didn't see that they were the self-righteous ones. When John the Baptist comes onto the scene as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, he's preaching repentance from sin. And, of course, the religious authorities don't listen. They don't need what John is preaching about, what he's offering. They don't need to be baptized. Because in their pride, they're already righteous before God. And then Jesus comes onto the scene preaching repentance and faith for the kingdom of God is at hand. But the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, the Pharisees are thinking, surely he's not talking about me, about us. He must be mistaken because we think the kingdom of God is right here. We're actually governing it right now. Things are going quite well. If they were asked, surely a Messiah will come, they might think, and kick out all these Gentiles, clean out the temple, and put us in our rightful places of authority. We have been preparing for this coming Messiah. But they missed all the signs of what God was trying to tell them through the prophets. If they had listened they would know. But instead, to them, the law became a source of pride. The governance of Israel became a source of pride. They became like the rich young ruler who said and followed all the commandments of the Lord, but asked Jesus, what do I lack? The Sanhedrin believed like their ancestors did, and they, they understood God's law as something to be obeyed, that could be met. Their pride had literally blinded them to the Messiah. And just like Zechariah, they conspired against him and eventually will kill Jesus. God sent prophet after prophet to preach the love of God and forgiveness of sin, but time and again, they get rejected by people who don't think they actually need it. And in fact, believe it's, it's an attack on them. They're prideful people. Pride often has two targets. You can either have pride in yourself, in man, or you can have pride in God. God gave us his word and the prophets not to give us a rule for righteousness, something that could be followed to a T, 
but he gave you and me his word for salvation and for life with him. As Pastor Heath preached this morning, to be with God. All the prophets pointed at God. They boasted in God. It was all, all of the Old Testament was pointing towards the one who would come, the ultimate sacrifice, who would cleanse us from our sin once and for all. We were created to boast in God, to be prideful in God. And God does the unimaginable, the inconceivable for prideful people. He subjects himself to weakness, to suffering, to rejection, and ultimately death. And Jesus is sent and comes not just for the oppressed, those who are suffering under those in power, but he comes for the religious leaders themselves. He's here for the prideful. He's here for you and me. He comes so that there would be a way for prideful people like myself to repent and to boast in a Savior that is wiser than I, which leads us to the reversal of pride. We might ask when we see this parable, this stone that's rejected by the builders, why does God show his power through rejection? Why does God show us his love with the cross, with suffering? Why doesn't God come with just obvious power, put everyone in their place, make it obvious? Why does God's power show through most clearly in weakness? As I thought about this passage, and as I was reading about it, uh, one commentator said that humans will do anything they possibly can to remove God from their lives. They'll do anything they can to get God out of their lives, to prove he doesn't exist, or to make a name for themselves, to boast in themselves, to create a law of Christian living that they can follow so that God isn't actually a part of their life. The wisdom of this world says that the answer to the good life is in us. The tenants of the vineyard think that once they finally kill the heir, they can have possession of the vineyard to themselves. This belief started in the Garden of Eden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it hasn't stopped ever since. I was listening to an interview last week on my drive back from Birmingham, which I go every week to Birmingham with Jane for uh, oral immunotherapy. Oral immunotherapy, that's what it is. It's O-I-T, but it's, I think it's only two words. Uh, anyways, we have this about three-hour drive each way, and on the way back, um, I was listening to this interview, and it was with Sam Altman, who is the founder of OpenAI, and one of the people responsible for ChatGPT. If you don't know what that is, it's basically like a Google interface where you type in what you want to know and it gives you an answer. But it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Um, they talked in this interview about what the future would look like and all the possibilities of AI. They spoke about the free and unrestricted access to intelligence for everyone in the world. And 
they were saying basically that the wisdom of the world would literally, eventually, be either implanted into our heads or it would be on a device that we could access easily, like a holographic interface. And this AI would be able to answer all of our questions that just come out from our thoughts instantly. Everything we would want to know about would be instantly solved for us in real time. And so these two men were dreaming about all the ways that AI could help our society, that could, it could help our world. They were thinking that, of course, AI would eventually remove every reason for war, every reason to fight, everything that would lead us to jealousy or lust or greed, and on and on. There wouldn't be any fighting because there wouldn't be any need, thanks to AI. It was really a new version of the new heavens and the new earth. But it was profoundly sad and depressing to me as I listened to this. As excited as these two men were about the possibilities of AI and what it would do potentially for our society, I couldn't help but think, if this is the world that is to come, I don't really want a part of this. They were saying that all suffering from humanity comes from something that we developed when we were primates. That they said there was a reward system that we needed when we were primates, and AI would remove the need for rewards, and humanity could change forever. It's an interesting worldview, one in which I think is not true and unbiblical. But the pride of these men was incredible. They really and truly believe that through AI they can remove all pain and suffering and conflict in life. And if there is such a result from AI, that is wonderful. Praise God for those things. But the problem with AI and everything else in this life is that it's made by prideful people. It's made by sinful people. It will be used, of course, for means that are not healthy and good for society. So for these men... AI was really their vineyard moment. If they had AI, if it really is all that they think it can be, they can remove every need for God. They can once and for all kill God. They can remove him from life. The wisdom of the world attempts to remove God from life at every turn. But as we come to know that true wisdom, of course, doesn't come from Silicon Valley. It comes from a small city in the Middle East where Jesus demonstrates the wisdom of God by making foolish the wisdom of the world. And we know this because he reverses the outcome of the worst instance of human pride in history, which is, of course, Jesus' death on the cross. The only innocent man and history subjects himself to the pride of sinful man so that there'd be a possibility of salvation, so that he would actually win salvation for his prideful people. Weakness, we come to find out, weakness is the ultimate antidote to pride. I think many of us would already agree with that. 
You can't be proud and weak at the same time. God demonstrates his power by becoming weak. Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses what looks foolish to the world to shame those who think they are wise. Why? so that no human being could boast in themselves. He wants to reverse the place of pride. He wants to take our pride in ourselves and put it completely in him. Jesus became vulnerable. He was the heir sent to the vineyard. He became weak. He was rejected. He gave up his life in order to show the wisdom of God. As Paul says, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Paul has so much to say about this. He goes on and says, For the word of the cross is folly, is ridiculous to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul then says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So in the kingdom of God, we see the great reversal of many things. In the kingdom of God, death leads to life. Weakness is strength. Humility is power. Paul says again, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The body is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And Jesus uses weakness and suffering not just to save you and me, but to keep us close to him. That famous passage where Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you when he's praying to God to take away the thorn in his flesh. He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then he goes on to say, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I am weak, then I am strong. So when we're most tired, when the world for you and me has come crashing down perhaps, when sadness or loneliness is your constant theme music every day, when the unfairness of life is loudest, when it's difficult to just get out of bed in the morning, this is where the world says, 
in the world's wisdom that God is the problem. That God must not exist. He must not care about you if you are suffering and in your suffering. But we see in the stone that the builders rejected that God's purposes are sure, that his power is seen the clearest in weakness and rejection and suffering. This is where God is most magnified when we, mankind, sinful men and women, are out of options when we are weak. It's also true that in our suffering, we're tempted to be prideful. We're tempted to believe that we have a better plan for our lives than God does. That nothing good can come in our weakness. And this, again, is the wisdom of the world. But Jesus turns our, even our most embarrassing weaknesses into strength. He trains us by it. He keeps us from becoming conceited, as Paul would say. He helps us comfort others in their weakness and sadness as we go through our own weakness and sadness. But the challenge for you and me tonight in this church, especially myself, is that unless you and I admit that we are prideful, that we're actually a little bit more like these tenants than we want to be, you'll never share about your weakness or your sadness or your suffering, your pain with others unless you know how Jesus became weak for you. Many people say it all the time that in the church we talk about sin we talk about suffering, we talk about the pain of life, but once we leave this building, you would never know about what we were suffering, what sin we had in our life, how we were hurting. And the reason for that is because we're prideful. We think weakness and suffering is bad because that's what the world tells us every day, all day. You might say something like, I shouldn't complain. It could be so much worse. Or I shouldn't be sad because I'm a Christian. I should be happy because Christ loves me. I just need to get over it. Or you'll say, this pain will pass eventually. I can make it through on my own. But Christians boast in the cross of Christ. That moment in history when the Savior of the universe hung naked on a cross, ridiculed and mocked. This is our Lord and Savior. He has shown the world's wisdom to be foolishness. In Jesus, it's not only okay to be hurting, but it's where God shows up in the clearest ways. And as I was thinking about this, when we hide that pain and suffering that we're all going through, we ought to be sharing with it, it with one another because unless you tell me about it, I, I won't know how God is at work. I want to be where the power of Christ is, and that is where weakness is. That is where suffering is. I want to see God at work, so I am asking you all to be sharing it with me, and that I would share with you. We need 
people in our lives to say to us that Jesus cares about you in this pain, in this suffering, that you're going to make it through. You need people to tell you that where you are weak, there you are strong because the grace of God is sufficient for you. The power of Christ shines in weakness. The, ver- the reversal, the reversal of pride looks like being rejected by the world and accepted by God and Christ alone. The reversal of pride looks like being rejected by the world and accepted by God in Christ alone. The stone that's rejected becomes the cornerstone. So we are called to be broken, to be weak, to stop hiding our pain and our sin because we weren't made to go through this life propped up by our own pride, believing that we can do it all through ourselves. Because where you're hurting and weak, Jesus is at work. And the body of Christ wants to be with you in that. The world abandons people when they see weakness. Because the world is prideful. As we'll see very soon in the Gospel of Mark, as soon as people see Jesus on the cross actually bleeding, suffering, they abandon him. Surely this man can't be the Messiah. He's, he's dying on a cross. He can't even save himself. But Jesus, the heir, has come. And though we rejected him, His grace is greater than our sin and our pride. Jesus, thankfully, loves prideful people like myself. People who deserve wrath but are given forgiveness. And so finally, the question I'll end on is, where is your pride? Who are you boasting in? Are you boasting in God? Are you boasting in yourself? Let's pray. Lord, you have come with great power. And that power is seen at the cross, amazingly. So we pray you'd give us faith to believe, eyes to see that what the world sees as foolishness, as ridiculous, that we would see as grace, that we would see as incredible love, forgiveness, that, God, you would subject yourself to weakness, not unwillingly, but willingly, for us, for people who didn't even want it. God, that is good news. So we pray that you would encourage our hearts with it and that you would lead people to see how you have been the stone that was rejected and has become the cornerstone. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand for our last hymn to close our service, which is hymn 252, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Would you stand for hymn 252?
Receive God's blessing as you go. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Amen.